Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. I know we had an Arscast Extra, an extra Arscast Extra on Wednesday, which might in another week have taken the place of the regular Friday Arscast. But you know what? I was in the mood for a bit of a chat. So that's what I did. Because I was thinking, you know, this week, um, you know, having watched Chelsea and, and how bad they are. I mean, they really are bad, all laughing aside. Well, no, actually, you know, keep the laughing on the main plate, on the dinner plate. You don't want a side of laughter. You want a main of laughter when it comes to Chelsea. But I was trying to understand how an an organization that, you know, is worth so much money, has these people in charge of it, could make the decisions that they have made this season, which have obviously influenced and contributed the the poor campaign that they have. You know, how do you, even if you're desperate, bring in Frank Lampard, you know, given his track record at Everton? The legend that is Frank Lampard, the Chelsea legend. Everton, a big, big club that could be relegated from the Premier League this season. Leeds sacked their manager, brought in another manager to help them avoid relegation, have sacked him, and now they've brought in Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce, what's next? Tony Pulis in at Nottingham Forest? Phil Brown coming in to take over from David Moyes at Everton? What's going on? Why are football clubs mad? So I thought that might be the basis of an interesting conversation. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to talk some Arsenal stuff as well. With me to have that conversation, delighted to welcome back to the show from CBS Sports, it's James Benj. Hello, James. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Thank you very much. Feeling better after, obviously, Arsenal got back to winning ways uh, during the week against Chelsea. You know, a few days have passed now. Just your cliff notes on what was, I think, a fairly pressurized game because of what had come before and how uh, convincing, is that the right word? How convincing the defeat was against Manchester City in the previous game or how emphatic perhaps might be the right way of putting that. There was an element of pressure on Arsenal to respond and to get back to winning ways, albeit against the Chelsea side that we know have been struggling this season. So your thoughts on the Arsenal performance and the way they responded? Yeah, I mean... Oh, to be frank, I don't have many. I guess going into the game, <laughs> um, I, I'll try and explain why. Yeah, Going into the game, I think we all sort of thought, like you said, everyone knew Chelsea's form was, was down, but for a London derby, you expect a team to raise itself. There is talent in that team. And, you know, I mean, everyone rightly chastises Frank Lampard, but I'd seen them have good moments against Real Madrid. And you think Arsenal are in a bad moment. Chelsea will be motivated to uh, to cause them some problems. Um, so that's what I thought before the game. After it, I have had absolutely no thoughts about Arsenal whatsoever beyond some kind of quite basic ones. Kivior was all right. Uh, it was very good for them on an emotional level to get a win. But all I thought was, 
Uh, this Chelsea team are, di- are truly diabolical. They might be the worst team in the Premier League. When I was speaking to people I know <laughs> that cover Chelsea and around Chelsea, not they told me that. Like people will think this is Arsenal Schadenfreude. Speaking to people around Chelsea, they were like, "Oh, yeah, actually, no. If this is like a forty-two game season or something weird, could actually get relegated." Um, and <laughs> I mean, so yeah, the the second best team in the league, and Arsenal are still, I believe that comfortably smashed the first or second worst team in the league. And so, yeah, kind of from an Arsenal perspective, I was like, no, I'm not getting carried away by how Jakob Kivior did against the shadow of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Mm. uh, You know, three balls to nowhere from Raheem Sterling. Um, No Arsenal thoughts. I know I've come on an Arsenal podcast, so I'm sorry (laughs) to have let you down. No, that's okay. I mean, I have to say, you know, uh, I felt a little bit sorry for Aubameyang. I talked about this on the Arscast Extra with with, with James. You know, the idea of selecting him up front for a game like this and, and Lampard basically said, you know, he was doing it for the vibes. It was all about the narrative. Um, uh, Tim Stillman sent me some quotes on Twitter, which basically said, yeah, it's his former club, so he'll be extra motivated, blah, blah, blah. But this is a guy who hasn't played or uh, started a game since <laughs> since November, you know. What is that? Like, if I wrote a piece like about, you know, how oh, it would be great to pick a Pamiang because he's extra motivated, people would be like, that's bad reasoning that's bad that's boring yeah. that's a boring view and it it doesn't talk to football no that's it i mean you you know and look there are a lot of football opinions out there some good some bad but you normally expect people who have played the game for a long time or worked in the game or you know this is a you know a big football club uh they have a man in charge who's just basically picking a team because it's what a youtuber would do well, that's kind of it, isn't it? A bad yeah. one as well. Yeah. Uh, I did feel a little sorry for him, you know, because he gave us great moments and, you know, he scored a lot of goals for Arsenal at a time when Arsenal were not always great, it's fair to say. Um, there's that clip doing the rounds, isn't there, just before kickoff and North London Forever is ringing around the stadium and he's sort of looking around going, oh, I remember this. I used to be here. This was, this was nicer than being at whatever the hell Chelsea is these days. But while we're talking Chelsea, I think, you know, it's an interesting idea to explore, you know, what football clubs are doing and how they're making decisions and the people that they have making decisions. So Chelsea, you know, clearly not my favorite football club or anybody listening to this, not their favorite football club. The one thing you would say about Chelsea under Roman Abramovich is that they were very well run. They had good people making decisions. Sometimes they they were ruthless to the point of of uh, I don't know. Uh, it was just brutal at times the way that they made decisions. But pretty much always it it kind of worked out for them because they bring somebody else in who would have some success and then they would you know, come to the end of that particular tether and fire them and bring in somebody else. And we know it's all tied up with the money. And I think the influence that Chelsea has had on on the modern game is worthy of exploration in more time than we have today because of, you know, how it skewed um, the the, the ownership or the expectations of ownership and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And it's no defense of Abramovich to say that Chelsea were well run when he was the owner. But it is remarkable to have undergone such a 180 in a short period of time where they appear now to be possibly 
the worst run football club in the world. It's, it's a fair, fair point. And, you know, you, you do start racking your brain for, for rivals and, and you don't get many. I, I think the thing you would, you would add about Abramovich is, you know, he didn't particularly worry what supporters thought of him. He didn't particularly worry what the noise was. He didn't worry what was being written in columns. It seems to me very clear from the way that Todd Bowley and Bedad Iqbali are acting that there is a real concern about fans getting angry at them, about columnists saying that they don't really know what they're doing. They're very keen to to get their side of the story out there. They're a lot more open in terms of interviews, in terms of you know trying to give a sense of what Chelsea want to do. Mm. But what Chelsea want to do is too led by what what they're hearing. They don't, the, the vision changes, the five and a half year contract or however long it was for Graham Potter. If you sincerely believe he's the right manager and you talk about rebuilds, you have to believe in the rebuild. I mean, it, it sort of seems like, you know, Burley in particular, people kind of don't fully appreciate that with the Dodgers, the MLB franchise he owns or he part owns, he, he doesn't have control there. He is a minority shareholder doesn't really get to play boss doesn't really get to to get involved and to do the ownership things mm. and so i think a lot of this season kind of has to be seen through the prism of, of himself and Egbali. not you know being a bit like a kid in a candy store being a bit incapable of you know mm. calling their urges i mean a great example of this is the the, the sacking of potter when i think it was the sunday morning after whatever his final game was you know, the, the clear indications coming out of Chelsea were that the sporting directors thought, no, you know, we've got to stay the course. We'll see it till the end of the season. And and we believe in this project. But ownership got capricious. Ownership got excited in much the same way that ownership got excited about Mikhailo Mudrik, who, you know, whether he's a talent or not, I thought he had some nice little flashes. The sort you would, <laughs> maybe he was the one that had a point to prove against Arsenal and that Frank Lampard should have started. Mm. But again, with that, you know, Chelsea had loads of options. They'd just bought Raheem Sterling, whatever you think of Pulisic. They had all these players on the left wing, but they saw that Arsenal were getting this fun, exciting new toy, but weren't getting it across the line. And they they went mad and, and they they blew Arsenal out of the water for a player that they don't need, that they don't necessarily have a vision of how they fit into the system, that, that neither Graham Potter nor Lampard were blown away with. And I mean, going back to Aubameyang, I agree with you. I think it is, I feel more sympathy for the guy because when... Uh, Thomas Tuchel was sacked. The, the the mood music, the briefings coming out of Chelsea were, look, we're not we're not panicking here. We've been thinking of doing this for a while. You know, we don't. We've had our doubts about whether this whole relationship is simpatico. All that wank. Um, <laughs> and yet, the three four three four days, I think it was prior, they had signed a striker for Thomas Tuchel. Who the only argument in favour of signing Aubameyang was well. Thomas Tuchel likes him. Thomas Tuchel knows how he works. We all kind of worry that he can't do it in the Premier League anymore. Mm. There's, there's, there's just no joined up thinking. There's no long term view. It's, it's too excitable. It's too. It's how we would all act if we if we owned a football club. Well, I mean, this is. I just was looking up the um, the ownership. Uh, Todd Bowley, Clear Lake Capital, um, uh, and there are others in this consortium. And Bowley told the press after the takeover. Our vision as owners is clear. We want to make the fans proud. 
which goes a long way to explain some of the nonsense that they get up to in the transfer market, where they <laughs> yeah. go like, oh, we will beat Arsenal to this player, or, you know, there's a player that another club are interested in, we'll go after them because, well, if they like that player, then it must be a good player. Whether or not that player fits into your whatever your vision is or or your strategy is. And I think, you know, I want to talk about Leeds now in a minute as well, but I'm just, you know, we've had some issues at Arsenal over the last number of years. There was the end of Wenger and all that kind of stuff and, and, and people were in charge and it didn't work out. And I think one of the things that's so... Is it comforting is maybe not the right word, but, you know, as this season is looking like it's going to play out in a way that's that's ultimately going to be a disappointment because of the context of the season, if not, you know, um, having achieved the the pre-season aim of getting back into the Champions League, and, and I think that's commendable and all the rest of it, but, you know... We were on top for a long time and we've, you know, dropped some points. We've been overtaken by the machine that is Manchester City. And, you know, there's just no way of of recovering from that, probably. You know, I know we've got four games to go and all the rest of it, but chances are. But what gives me a a measure of solace or, or comfort or whatever is that this is a club right now where the strategy feels good. The the there is joined up thinking at a, at executive level between you know technical director, the manager, the ownership, all of those kinds of things. You know, and it's it's quite interesting the the sort of parallel, if you like, with Chelsea, who were this well run thing and now are a shambles, and Arsenal, who weren't really as well run as they are right now. And it doesn't take much or it doesn't take much time for something to go the other way. Do you know what I mean? And there is, you know, there are countless examples of football clubs that are run in crazy ways. But your best chance of success comes when there is that solidity, those foundations, when they are in place, you know, you have the best chance of success in inverted commas. Yeah. I mean, Chelsea have kind of all the all the intangibles or well not intangibles all the but all the prerequisites that they need to be a hugely successful club beyond the way in which they manage themselves they have money they have a superb academy um although i mean frankly that's that is struggling a little bit of late um, and there are a lot of kind of doubts <laughs> when they see um you know when when you're the family of a young footballer and you see another i mean every time i check Fabrizio Romano's Twitter feed. I'm seeing some 14 year old child who's been signed for 10 million. Um, but anyway, they've, they've got the they've got the academy, they've got the money, they've got the Premier League, they've got London. Uh, it it doesn't take much to get out of your own way. Um, I would question whether Chelsea have built a structure that allows themselves to do that. It is the definition of too many cooks with multiple owners all having a view, and you can't change that. But maybe you don't need two co-directors co-sporting two co-sporting directors a technical director director of recruitment and talent um i will have missed someone mm. <laughs> I, I i can tell you know I, I know how arsenal work you know and i could i could probably draw we could all probably draw out a, a fan could draw the arsenal org chart and tell you yeah this is how decisions are made makes sense i don't know who at chelsea beyond the owners who don't really know much about football has the final say and, and what mm. the process is. And if your processes don't work, it's very hard to get good outcomes. That is true. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of Leeds this weekend and everyone is everyone is hoping against hope, you know, that maybe Manchester City 
will slip up against Sam Allardyce's Leeds United. But but this is another great example of how a football club that came up that had a manager who had a system who the players understood and worked hard for and all those kinds of things, Marcelo Bielsa. And obviously there there are I think gonna be inconsistencies when you're when you're a club like Leeds. But here we are with like four games to go. They've just sacked the manager they brought in to help them avoid the drop and they're parachuting in out of retirement a real Hail Mary in, in Sam Allardyce to try and keep them up in the Premier League because this season has been crazy. You go back to January, the January transfer window. They gave uh, Jesse Marsh players, money to buy players, and then sacked him pretty much straight away. I mean, what is it about football that makes these big organizations do such nonsensical, ridiculous things because of vibes, if you like. I suppose it's nothing more than the sort of panic of relegation, isn't it? Because that's mm. why we've seen Leeds hire two managers, Gracia as well, who who have entirely ditched uh, their their style, their sensibilities. You know, we, we all know anyone that's watched Leeds play a game knows or, or did under Marsh, did under Bielsa, knows what this football team is supposed to look like, knows how difficult mm. it can be if they catch you on a good day for them. Um, as you remember when Arsenal beat them 1-0. There's, there's a sort of emotional challenge that they've never really got over of, you know, the, the Bielsa-Marsh thing, it does feel quite similar to, to Wenger and Emery on a, on a lower scale, obviously, mm. where so much emotion and, and frankly so much of the club's capital was invested in, in Bielsa the fans and I know this is obviously the difference with Arsenal the fans adored him to the last and wanted him to stay and no one but no one can love the guy after even if the guy after tries to do the same stuff mm. um, and that wasn't working I, I don't necessarily think they should have kept Marsh but you know they they like like you said they built a squad for Bielsa's or Marsh's football, and then they they thought, gosh, we need to fix the defence. But I, I don't know that you can necessarily fix a defence just by having a defensive manager if the players aren't the right players for that. Yeah, yeah, they miss Tyler Adams massively, uh, and this is the thing with Allardyce is Allardyce is not going to kind of go there and find that he has the players for four four fucking two that he can you know, rely on set piece goals and, and keeping it tight at the back in the space of three or four training sessions. I mean, as much as I and, and everyone listening to this want to believe that Allardyce can, can pull this out of the bag at a moment's notice, there's no evidence from his sort of track record that he immediately does that because mm. managers that do, do this, keep it tight. They don't, it doesn't happen right away. It can't, they would be miracle workers if it could. Um, and uh, you know, Leeds feel a bit like Everton. So they've said they, and I think the, the tr trouble is when you dive into this Everton, this Sunderland vortex of mm. every decision we make is is framed around survival. You're probably just postponing the inevitable because you know when Allardyce goes, maybe they'll try and get in a manager to to get back to that style. But you've built in your head the idea that you can just sack the manager and change the style, and it might might be the best thing. So. That it's just panic about relegation. It is. I mean, what what do you make of Sam's comments? Um, 
said, I may be 68 and look old, but there's nobody ahead of me in football terms. Not Pep, <laughs> not Klopp, not Arteta. It's all there with me, and I shared it with them. They do what they do. I do what I do. But in terms of knowledge and depth of knowledge, I'm up there with them. I'm not saying I'm better, but I'm certainly as good as they are. And look, I, I wrote about this a little in the in the blog on Thursday, and a couple of people, like, you can't listen to those quotes or read those quotes and not have a kind of slightly humorous reaction to them. Some people say, uh, said to me on Twitter, he's just taking the pressure off the players. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. It seems like a generous interpretation of uh, those comments, given some of the previous that we've had from Sam Allardici, of course, <laughs> you know, when he talked about his tactical knowledge in the past. Yes, I think there is a man there who, I don't know him, um, maybe that's an advantage because I think to an extent, you know, he has fostered a really good relationship with some parts of the media and that has doubtless helped him and, and that's what sometimes you have to do in your in your line of work. Um, I think there is a man there with a bit of a chip on his shoulder who perhaps rightly looks back at what he achieved at Bolton and I know Arsenal fans hate rem being reminded of this, but a um a team that punched vastly above its weight that did we were talking about this in relation to to leads and people were talking about ditching moneyball principles and moneyball's a word that doesn't really mean anything in english football discourse but if you want to look for someone that exploited market inefficiencies that was ahead of the curve on data it's allardyce at, at bolton with his video scouting and his signing of jj akocha and yuri jokaev and mm. some of the, your favourite players before they played for Bolton, um, picking all them up. And I think to an extent he he feels like history has done him harshly. And he may be right. Like There is no right way to play football. And if he gets the results, then, then he is vindicated. But it feels a lot like re reputation management from a, a man that's taking the paycheck, which could be gigantic if he keeps leads up. Um, and... Uh, doesn't necessarily want to um, wants to distance himself from a relegation that, to me, looks quite likely. Pretty much inevitable. And you know, the thing about it is, is that you know he did get to manage Newcastle. You know, uh, what are they called? A sleeping giant. Um, I'm not sure that's he necessarily. Yeah, he, he put them to sleep permanently. The final trip to the vets. Well, maybe that should have happened in Newcastle uh, before all the the other stuff happened. Um, you know, but he did get to manage Everton, you know, a big club, um, you know, with some pedigree. He got to manage West Ham, a big club in, in in London. So he did have his moments. He did have his chances, of course, the England job as well, which ended for non-footballing reasons. But It's the uh, way we'd all want to go out. Pint of wine in hand. <laughs> a big fat goblet of wine. Yes, true. Um, let's talk... A little about Arsenal now. Um, what's one thing you would like to see from Mikel Arteta next season? Uh, clearly, there's still a bit to do this season, but, you know, with time to reflect over the summer, and I think we all understand that the club are going to to do some business and, and all the rest of it. But as he continues his development as a manager, what's one thing you would like to see? That's a good question. Um, I think that especially 
talking about, you know, referring to the business this summer and what we expect to happen, four or five strong recruits. And with Champions League football, I think this is a time where Arteta needs to push away from an 11, a 12, a 13 or 14, which is probably where Arsenal have been at this season, certainly was that where they were last, mm. and really exploit some of the talent and and don't not have a set 11 that people can plan game plan against. I think it's been pretty clear for a while, even before Saliba uh, got injured, that the teams had maybe worked out a better way to create shots from Arsenal, going long, beating mm-hmm. their press. You know, m- more players means greater variety in terms of how you play, in terms of the players you use and the freshness of them. I think it's really important that Arteta doesn't get to a stage where next season's Emil Smith-Rowe, a player of great talent, it just can't play because he hasn't played before for weeks on end, months on end. And I know there are injuries to factor in with a lot of these players, but players that are just atrophying on the bench that can't fully be trusted. I mean, what are Arsenal at now? 15 players, you would say. Um, you know, the, the 11 that, that played against uh, Chelsea with with Partey and, and Martinelli and a couple of others, that needs to become a squad of about 20. That's how many Pep uses. Mm. And they are all of high-grade talent. But actually, I kind of think if what Arsenal want to happen happens in the summer, then they could well have about 20 really good players to use. And I want to see Arteta using kind of all of them from August onwards so that right, even right the way through to May, like no one knows no one knows how Pep Guardiola is going to play against Leeds other than a couple of pieces. I think everyone knew, knows at full strength what Arsenal would do. And if mm. Arsenal can develop some unpredictability, some change-ups in their substitutions, that's another thing he, he could work on. That's next step. That's getting closer to City there. There was an interesting question after the... I think it was after the Chelsea game. Maybe it was before the Chelsea game, but in the embargoed section of the press conference, where he was asked about the the physicality of Manchester City versus the physicality of, of Arsenal. And look, I don't think Arsenal are a small team. I think we've got some some big guys. You know, when you think about when everyone's fit, you've got a, a spine of the team that includes Saliba and Gabriel, Ramsdale, Partey, Xhaka. You know, not huge guys. But clearly Manchester City have, you know, like they're technically, they're still amazing. But the teams you associate with Pep Guardiola down the years have been those those classic Iniesta, Xavi, Aguero, Silva. I'm not going to say lightweight because that mm. sounds um, pejorative. I, I don't mean that. But, but clearly there is a physical difference between those players and let's say... Rodri and De Bruyne and Haaland, obviously, who is, uh, you know, I don't know quite how to describe him in a way that that sort of does it justice. And, and, you know, when when a player like that comes along, I think Andrew Allen actually described it really well, uh, referring to Jonah Lomu as a player who just sort of added something new to the game of rugby. And all of a sudden, people had to deal with that and contend with that. Is that something you think Arsenal could add when they are building this squad? Because, you know, they've got brilliantly technical players and and Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard, Jesus now all over 
10 Premier League goals uh, for the season, four players on over 10 Premier League goals, Odegaard with 14. You know, the technical level isn't low by any means. I think you can always add to that. But is it trying to maybe find that in combination with something a bit extra that allows you to, let's say in a game against Chelsea where you're 3-0 up at halftime and the conversation is at the break, let's score another one, let's score another one, let's get four goals, let's get five goals, which is what Shaka was talking about on, on TV afterwards. You know, is that a way of of maybe asserting your dominance in fixtures where you're on top and you don't want the last 25 minutes to be nerve-wracking because you've let in a silly goal and you, you, yeah. you haven't scored enough? That's definitely one one advantage to physicality. I almost kind of look at it in a different way and it goes back to that City game. And the reason why I just thought watching that game, I didn't even feel that neg- that, that critical of Arsenal because it just became quickly apparent with Haaland. I, lo- I love the, I, I, you know, in, in basketball, they're called players like him a unicorn. I mean, mm. there's actually quite a few of them now in the NBA, but it's, they just don't, they're not supposed to exist. You can't be that tall, that strong, that, technical that quick that quick and that was the point was you could you know in in the old you could press city well and force them to go long before this season and that was that was your way of getting the ball back it might it, it was 50 50s maybe but it was mm. it was your chance it was really hard and actually i thought there was a lot of debate about arsenal's press i thought it was better than it got credit for but part of the challenge is just the, the the gigantic guy at the other end mm. who can dominate you. And, and I think, obviously, as I say, unicorn. Arsenal can't get Haaland. But what I would like to see Arsenal do is another way of advancing the ball into that final third. I know Clive on the Arsenal, Arsenal Vision talks about this a lot as well. I don't want to claim this is my idea. Is it a Tammy Abraham, a player like that, that can, that can be your route out of the press. Arsenal are so good at beating opposition press, which doesn't really come anymore, mm. through the interplay of Zinchenko, Gabriel Saliba, Partey. You know, they can they can pass around it, they can run through it, but eventually they will need to be able to go over it. And I think that means, you know, tough conversations about maybe some of the reserve players. I don't like the idea of changing up how Arsenal's strongest 11 plays massively. Mm-hmm. A couple of, couple of bits of honing here and there, but is Eddie Nketiah going to be a player that wins 60% of his, 70% of his aerial duels? It, it, does a conversation need to happen about whether Arsenal do need a, a presence in the box for when things get desperate, as, it, as they always do, and you start flinging crosses in? That, I think, and that, that from a physicality perspective up top, that's where I would like to see Arsenal just add a little bit more oomph someone that can back into defenders. Jesus will fight them all day. And I feel like in the pub car park, he'd be pretty scrappy. Yeah. But, um, you know, an Abraham, uh, yeah, just that, a big, tall centre forward that's mobile, I think could really add something. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think part of that is because, you know, as you do get better, teams will sit off a bit more. Like you think about... Think about the way Newcastle, you know, who are coming up this weekend, and we'll talk more about the Newcastle game on our, our Patreon preview pod, so I don't want to um, uh, go too deep into the weeds on this one. But when you think about the way Newcastle came to play at the Emirates and look at the way they're playing now and look at how they can hurt teams by playing on the front foot, but they came to the Emirates and they sat 
and Arsenal found it difficult to to break them down and maybe didn't have quite the tools to deal with six foot seven Dan Byrne just bopping the ball away like a Birmingham City centre half in 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 the early two thousands, standing on the edge of his box, bang, 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 bang. And I think more teams will play like that against Arsenal the, the higher the level goes. And we experienced that down the years with loads of teams who played, came, sat, parked the bus, whatever you want to call it, and just said, okay, break us down, break us down. And some days you have the craft and some days you have the, the, the precision and some days you have the guy who will pick the pass or some days you've got the guy who will spank one in from 30 yards because they're sitting so deep that, you know, that space is there to have a shot. But there are going to be other days where you you do need something different. And I don't mean like fucking just bang it up to Tony Cascarino up there and see what he can do. But I think Holland Holland has kind of redefined that role. Um, you know, he used to have the, well, he's got good feet for a big man. He's got good everything for a big man. And that is perhaps the next um, development in, in how football teams operate. Like not everyone is going to be able to get a Holland, but... You might be able to get somebody who's got some of those qualities who can give you some of what he gives Manchester City, who, you know, for all the technical ability, for all the tiki-taka, for all the precision, for all the tactics, for all of it, we're not afraid to just fucking lump it up front over the top of the Arsenal midfield and look at what their big guy did. He's played it off to a slightly less big guy who can run and we were in all kinds of trouble. It was great. I mean, like, with Oasis playing at half time as well, I thought it was 1995 all over again. It wasn't great. It was horrible. Quinn and Dickoff up front for, yeah. Get it launched. You could hear Graham Taylor in your head going, hit Les. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned some of the reserve players and some of the decisions that Arsenal are going to have to make, but also interestingly, some of the decisions that the players themselves are going to be making. Um, it's reported that, that Reese Nelson is, uh, you know, has rejected a, a contract offer from Arsenal. He's been playing a bit more regularly this season. Um, people will be saying, well, look at what he could contribute. Look at what, what he did contribute. But I think players are well aware of which way the wind is blowing as well, particularly inside a club, a club that they've been at their, their whole lives. Um, with someone like Nelson, you know, there is an offer, I think, that Arsenal could make that makes sense to the club. But from the player's perspective, the chance to go somewhere and play more regularly uh, has got to be part and parcel of, of their thinking. And we've seen that this week with, with Charlie Patino talking about how he wants to play regular first-team football. Again, this is something we talked about on on the Arscast Extra. You know, if he wants to go play, great. But I don't think if you want to raise the level to a team that can compete for the Premier League and the Champions League, he's quite at that level yet, right? So that makes sense. How do you view these kinds of, of decisions for the club? You know, particularly someone like Nelson, you know, it, it makes sense for him maybe to go somewhere else on a Bosman. Yeah, I, I think from Nelson's perspective, look, you know, my understanding, yes, he has uh, rejected the contract offer, but he actually hasn't made up his mind yet. Um, he is still really considering all of his options because you, you know, for the reason you've laid out there, he's he's well aware of what his role would be at Arsenal. I, I believe he's an Arsenal fan. Obviously, he's certainly grown up with the club 
and it would be a real wrench for him to leave um, on a personal level. But equally, it is really frustrating when he feels like he's taking big strides um, and yet, well, I would suspect he feels like he's taking big strides and yet there's these immovable objects of Martinelli and Saka ahead of him, younger than him, not going anywhere at all. Mm. It, it's really tough when you know his talent. And yet, you know, I mean, I, I, I know, for instance, right before that Bournemouth goal, mm-hmm. I think he'd pretty much made up his, he, or he was, he was really starting to open himself up to the idea that he might go. And when you have moments like that with a club that you spent so long at, I am certain it becomes a lot harder to leave and a bit of a wrench equally look, you know, I mean, I think I kind of wrote this back in March just after that goal, Brighton, uh, when Brighton are the team chasing you, Mm. Nice, the Milan clubs want you. I think it becomes quite, quite sensible to go. I guess actually from Arsenal's perspective, when I see these really sparky games off the bench and think, Hmm, you know, a Moussa Diaby, another wing option, another player that's off the right, that's a 40, 50 million pound signing. Mm. Does it make sense to to overpay on Nelson if you believe that he could be the... I suppose the question is, do you believe he could start some Champions League games, some easier Premier League games and score a lot of goals and create a lot of goals and win, win you games? If so, like say to Reese Nelson, what's the money that will, will change your mind and make you reassess your career development is it, is it about money though you know because um clearly that would be a factor be. it always can be like here's you know a monstrous amount of money oh look my principles have uh, gone out the window because of that you know um but i think when you're him when you're his age when you've been through the the difficulties that he's had in terms of injuries where you know, there were periods he should have gone on loan, picked up an injury in preseason or picked up an injury in January, couldn't make that loan move, and then has found himself stagnating, I guess. And and we've seen, you know, he was certainly one of the most highly rated youngsters. Um, you know, that, that crew that came out at the same time with uh, Maitland-Niles, Reese Nelson, Eddie Nketiah, Joe Willock, that kind of generation... Um, you know, he was really, really highly rated as as one of the, the top prospects. But, you know, his career hasn't really gone the direction um, he would have liked or maybe Arsenal would have liked. You know, this might be a much easier decision for Arsenal if the injuries hadn't um, hadn't hit him the way that they had. So it's, it's finding that balance, isn't it, between the need to play, the desire to play, but also the the money on offer and, and the opportunities that you might have, um, you know, Brighton must be very, very tempting at this point because, you know, A, if Brighton are after you, if you're a player and Brighton are after you, you're thinking, hey, good. hey, I, I must be actually pretty fucking good here because, you know, they've got their eye on the ball. But, you know, it looks like a bit like Arsenal as well. I'm not sort of yeah. taking away from this. It looks like it's a, f- a good place to be, a fun place to be. The manager is good. The squad is good. The football is good. The You know, everyone's kind of happy with the way things are going. And, you know, that, that would be a temptation, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And, and as much as I say there, you know, there's money that I'm, I'm you know, I'm speculating there that mm. there's money that could convince him to stay. I think if you have a conversation with, with Brighton, especially a Brighton that has Europe, and they say, look, you know, we, we do see you as being a a regular starter. I mean, by the way, 
a natural left winger, yeah, you know, you've got Gabriel Martinelli for competition at um, at Arsenal. Small matter of Cairo Matoma for competition yes. at Brighton. <laughs> I, it's, but I think maybe the um, it's a chance for. I, I think maybe his career needs a launch pad. It needs a, a, a something to take the next step. Mm. He could be a really good reserve for Arsenal, but I don't think he would fulfil his, like you laid out there, his enormous potential. Mm. I don't know if he would at Brighton either, but um, I th- see. it seems a logical step for him. And as much as Arsenal, it would have been nice for them to get a fee for him at some stage in his development. Like he has already been an incredibly valuable academy graduate. He's got goals. He's got big performances and done that on low wages. Um, it's mm. been a great investment by Arsenal that's paid itself back. Plenty. Speaking of, the other player I'm thinking of this summer where I guess folks will be torn considering what he's done out on loan is is Flo Balagoon. And there were some stories a couple of weeks ago. You know, when you see stories like this in the media, you know they've come from, in inverted commas, the player's camp, right? About how he wants to play regular first-team football but he knows Gabriel Jesus is there. And we've already talked maybe about Arsenal doing something a little different up front, having a different profile of player. And, you know, I'm not saying that Balagoon is exactly the same as Jesus or exactly the same as Inketia, but they're in the same ballpark, I think, um, physically and how they play the game. And he's done extremely well on loan in France and scored a lot of goals. That feels like, you know, as much as Arsenal might say, you know, we need depth and we do need depth and they might need more than uh, two strikers next season. If you've got Champions League, that third striking option might get plenty of game time. It's one of those where it it's stacking up to be the sort of decision that you make um, strike while the iron is hot in a mm. way to maximize the revenue that you bring in on an, on an academy player who could help fund some purchases elsewhere, which in the short to medium term might be better suited to the squad building project that the club are undertaking. A hundred percent. I mean, even compared to Nelson, this one actually feels to me quite easy and quite obvious. Um, you know, warm congratulations to Balogun as he leaves the door, but 35, 40 million pounds, if you can kind of get that, I think a lot of the interest will come from the European market, but mm. he has done so well in France that I, I, it seems like that interest is there. The likes of Leipzig, a lot of clubs in the market and a lot of clubs that will lose, you know, lose their striker to a big Premier League team who will think Balogun's young, Balogun's talented. And, and we now have seen that track record. And yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would say that that is a huge success from Arsenal's perspective, what they've done. They've turned a situation that I remember, was it two years ago, whenever he signed his, his contract, looked really hairy, like mm. they could lose both Nketiah and Balogun for nothing. Yeah, um, And they've turned that into a, a first-team centre-forward and um, hopefully, from their perspective, 30 to £40 million pounds in the bank. So um, it's a well-managed situation, shows what, getting the right loans can do and something we maybe don't talk about enough that's happening more and more with Arsenal um, and so credit to Ben Napper and, and Edu for that because uh, what a great bit of business this has been yeah well it, it could well turn out to be and just final thing you know going 
into this summer and we, we've talked about recruitment and talked about how to build the squad, selling is going to be something I think a lot of people have their eye on. And Balagoon, uh, Nelson's going to go for free. But there are other players who've been out on loan this season who the club need to move on probably. You know, um, Nuno Tavares... Uh, started very well at Marseille. I don't know what 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 mayhem is happening there around him now. <laughs> They're always him and Matteo Guendouzi in one team. I yeah, Gen- not quiet. I saw stories during the week about Guendouzi leaving Marseille. Basically, said uh, Guendouzi's going to leave. That's what's going to happen this summer. So expect him to rock up at Aston Villa. Yes, <laughs> no two ways about that, right? Um, but you know, players like Lukonga, who's not really playing at, at at Crystal Palace. We sent him to work under Patrick Vieira. Uh, and you know it didn't end well for for either of them there. But these guys, um, you know, who realistically don't have any future at Arsenal, is there a way that the club can use the newfound stature as a you know as one of the top teams in England to help facilitate moves when previously it's been a little more difficult because the perception of you as a football club isn't quite as high as it is. Right now, if well, that if, makes sense. Yeah. I think the difference between now and a few years ago, I mean, the, the most crucial one is these players we're talking about, Tavares, Laconga, they're young and they're not on mm. 150000 a week. I mean, we should emphasize they're still on a lot of money by the perspective of teams in Liga and in the Bundesliga, mm. let alone, you know, the rest of the low, the leagues outside Europe's top five. It's not going to be easy, but we saw this with Liverpool and I think they had a fantastic team and a fantastic uh, director of football in, in Michael Edwards. But when you are a successful team, um, even your fringe players, even your loanees, people think Arsenal are a competent football club. We know they've bought good talent across the team. I, I don't think many people would say that players like Nuno Tavares and, and Laconga aren't talented and they're not old. You know, mm. Clubs will say to themselves, there's resale value. In Laconga, if it doesn't work out right, it might work out well. And there's lots of resale value in Laconga. I don't think it's easy because every Arsenal player is on a wage that shrinks the pool gigantically. Um, but compared to compared to when they were trying to clear out the the Socrates's, who I know we both like, the Mustafis, <laughs> who I know we don't, uh, and the um, Kalasanaks of the world, at least these guys are six, seven years younger on, on a little bit more of an affordable wage. Mm. And also like we said, yeah, a few Balogans and Tierneys here and there mean you can, you can take a bit of a knockdown rate and you can, you can say, Oh, you know, give us some long-term clauses to make the deal work on Laconga on Tavares, because you've got the good players who you can sell for really good money. Yeah. Um, it looks all right. It's going to be fascinating to see. Um, like, I'm not so invested in balancing the books, but I really would like to see Arsenal um, sell well and uh, and then obviously reinvest. Um, so I think that's just another step forward in, in the, the evolution of, of the team and the squad and the club uh, in this current project. We bought well, now start selling well and, and buy better, I guess, is the, uh, I guess is the way to do it. Right, we better leave it there. As ever, James, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game-changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter. He is at James Benj, at James Benj. So we have a big game, of course, this weekend, taking on Newcastle away from home at St. James's Park, where last season, well, it didn't go well. It did not go well. But last season, things did not go well at White Hart Lane, and this season, they fucking did. So let's hope we can do a bit of that on Sunday. It's going to be tough. We don't have any team news as of this moment recording on Thursday evening. But for those of you on Patreon, we will have a preview podcast as we do for every Premier League game. Myself and Lewis Ambrose will look ahead to the trip to Newcastle on Sunday afternoon. So you can join us at patreon.com forward slash arseblog. James and I will have an arsecast extra for you on Monday morning. In the meantime... Let's, I don't know. I can't even say it out loud. We all know what we would like to happen this weekend, as far-fetched as it is. So maybe by not saying it out loud, nah, that's a load of bollocks. Leeds are going to get absolutely spanked, aren't they? Yep, that's pretty much what's going to happen. Anyway, don't let that bit spoil your weekend. Let's hope Arsenal can do the business on Sunday. For now, take it easy, enjoy your weekend, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Aholigod FM. It's been an exciting week here at the radio station. We've got a brand new special effects machine that makes you sound like you're in a cathedral. Hello! But now, something a bit more serious. We have a letter here from Richard. And Richard says, Dear Aholigod FM, I'm feeling very sad for my good friends who can't find any work these days. They are very competent men, good at their jobs, but all the companies now want to bring in foreign workers. 
these men are dyed in the wool legends of the areas that they grew up in. Shouldn't we look after our own? Keep the local economy booming, as they say. But no, and my friends now just have to sit around, unemployed, while people from all over the world come to our country and take all the jobs. Maybe you could offer some advice. And that comes from Richard, who now lives and works in... Qatar. Well, Richard, I've thought long and hard about this, and I do have some advice for you. It's quite simple. People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Now, let's get on with the music here at Holy God FM, and apropos of nothing, here's a classic from Warren Zevon. It's the Werewolves of London. Ow! Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.